welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. We recently hosted a symposium bringing together contributors to The Battle for the Constitution, a website that features essays exploring current events from a constitutional perspective. The site is a joint project from the National Constitution Center and The Atlantic. Today we're sharing part two of this symposium, a conversation on the constitutional issues raised by the coronavirus crisis. Jeffrey Rosen was joined by scholars Deborah Perlstein, Polly Price, and Adam White. Here's Jeff to get the conversation started. All right, friends, it's now my great pleasure to welcome our next panel, which is also an amazing group. Adam White is assistant professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School, where he directs the law school C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. Deborah Perlstein is professor of law and co-director of the Florsheimer Center for Constitutional Democracy at Cardozo Law School. And Polly Price is the Aza Grigg Candler Professor of Law and Professor of Global Health in the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Adam, Deborah, and Polly, thank you so much for joining. Adam, let's start with you. There are so many cases currently pending in the lower courts about civil liberties and the coronavirus. They include cases involving religious liberty, and the Supreme Court just decided a non-corona religious liberty case today, Uh, but there are many involving the closing of uh, churches and whether they should be entitled to exemptions. Uh, There are cases involving prisons and the treatment of prisoners. There are cases involving quarantines and the conditions under which the feds and the state can engage in them. I'll ask you about the religion cases to begin with, because I just want to start right in. Which ones are you following and and how would you describe the state of the debate about the free exercise clause and the coronavirus? The case you mentioned that was decided today, the non-coronavirus case, that was really a case of of express discrimination against uh, religion. At least that's the court of how the court framed it in the Espinoza case, where in the state of Montana, there was a categorical ban against state funding uh, going to religious schools. And the court held that that was unconstitutional when it, uh, that state law was unconstitutional when it prevented uh, a family from applying state funds in a scholarship to a religious school. Um, now that was a case of express, as the court saw it, express discrimination. What's happening in the coronavirus cases is a little more nebulous. Uh, the the criticism generally is that it's not that laws are explicitly discriminating against religion, although there's always you know, accusations like that. It's more that religion is facing disparate treatment that really isn't easily explained. And so people will point it to, say, prohibitions against gatherings, including gatherings of religious bodies, um, and, and say that, well, other people are allowed to meet. Why are you discriminating against us? Now, I know this all too well. Our church in, in Virginia, our Catholic parish, has been, it was shut down for a very long time, uh, pursuant to the state of Virginia's uh, requirements, and it's opening very slowly. So we know all too well how much this hurts. But the question is whether there's either expressed discrimination or unstated but intended uh, discrimination. And if not, then the question is just a, sort of a balancing of government power against rights, as we've seen in RIFRA and in other cases. Now, the Supreme Court recently turned away a couple of cases. One of them was called South Bay United Pentecostal Church, um, where the court decided not to hear the case. And Chief Justice Roberts issued an opinion saying that there wasn't express discrimination. And as he saw it, there really wasn't a a clear case of of state power 
um, unduly infringing upon constitutional right. Other justices, Justice Kavanaugh uh, and others uh, disagreed, but that's really the state of play right now. I'd say that as more things, and I'll end on this, I've gone a little long, but I'd say as more and more things open up, as states open more things up for business, I think we're going to see an acceleration of these cases uh, to the extent that churches, church communities find themselves left behind. But again, the judges in all these cases have to parse carefully between express discrimination, um, implicit discrimination, and just questions about burden. Thank you very much for that. A great uh, overview of the issues in the religious liberty cases, and we know we'll return to some of them. Deborah, I asked Adam to start with a concrete uh, question involving religious liberty because there's so many cases. Maybe you can broaden us out a bit and give us a sense of the range of cases that you see the COVID crisis has introduced into the court system, both cases where uh, the government is acting in a way that people claims infringes civil liberties and some cases where the government is uh, failing to act in ways that it might. Uh, that raise different uh, legal uh, issues. Right. So um, thank you for this wonderful set of panels uh, first and for having me. Um, you know, I think your question is, is is the right one, is a great one, because when we think about state responses to emergency situations um, or serious public crises, I guess from a civil liberties point of view, I look for three kinds of concerns. One is the set of concerns, uh, like Adam was just talking about as an example, right, violations of particular rights by actions that the government is taking in order to address the emergency. So in the last panel, we were talking about infringements on rights of assembly under the First Amendment. Adam was just talking about concerns about um, the free exercise of religion. And you know there are other cases, a few other cases now ongoing about states that have imposed quarantines of, from people coming from outside their states and whether or not that infringes on the right to travel that's been recognized by the Supreme Court. Um, so there are always concerns about those particular rights and we should talk about the details of them. Um, I think one of the fascinating things about the government response to this particular crisis is um, that we haven't seen maybe as many of those as we might have expected, at least so far, in part because so much of the government's response, certainly at the federal level, has been characterized by inaction as opposed to sort of aggressive actions against individuals or individual rights. So I'm actually slightly less concerned at the moment about those kinds of infringements, although there are some some concerns. Um, a second kind of worry about are sort of what I would call opportunistic um, actions. That is, actions state or federal government are taking um, that are purportedly in response to the emergency, but in fact, don't really have any rational basis in public health initiatives and so forth. And we've seen a fair number of those. So announcement just today by the administration that it's going to even further restrict and maybe simply remove, contrary to statutes and, and treaties, um, rights to seek asylum here in the United States, removals of environmental regulations on the grounds that for some reason the crisis demands them, um, bans at least temporarily on abortion altogether in about eight states during the shutdown because those weren't medically necessary, or at least that was the state law. And we've seen a fair number of um, those, what I would call opportunistic actions. And I think those are concerning. Um, but we're seeing a fair bit of pushback in the courts, and, and we'll see. We can talk about in detail uh, how some of those play out. But I guess I think for me, the most concerning category um, so far are the kinds of um, 
impositions on civil liberties or damage to democracy that you might see more systemically by the government's failure to act to protect rights that it has to protect or that is supposed to protect. So if you look at, for example, um, uh, prison systems in the United States or immigration detention, and you have large numbers of people concentrated together um, in places where in the risk of infection is enormously high. In order to protect those people, the government has a constitutional responsibility under the Eighth Amendment to put in place new systems, um, whether it keeps people in custody or temporarily releases some of them, in order to address the threat to those individuals' rights and health and safety. Um, a similar kind of example is elections, right? You think about rights to vote and the ability to carry out free and fair elections. In a situation like this, the government needs to provide money and additional resources in order to carry out free and fair elections. And if those things don't happen, um, then you have really profound threats to civil liberties and rights. And those worry me most maybe not only because they tend to fall disproportionately heavy, heavily on minority communities that you see struggling with these rights as it is, uh, but also because those are the sort of, particularly with elections and freedom of the press and so forth, kind of the gateway necessary um, conditions for having a functioning democracy. And when those are compromised, those are, those are the ones that start to worry me most. Thank you for that great series of distinctions between opportunistic actions and uh, uh, Failure to act, and and then those uh, that that latest category of, of the election cases as well. And I, I hope we'll return to uh, several of them if, if, uh, in the next round. Polly Price, you've written a, a series of really illuminating pieces on the history of the 1918 pandemic and what it can teach us. And in your piece, "How a Fragmented Country Fights a Pandemic," you noted that uh, back in 1918, when cities uh, closed schools, churches, and places of entertainment, state and local judges routinely upheld the measures. There's so much to say about what the history of the response to that pandemic can teach us today. What would you like our audience to know about the lessons of 1918? That we have been here before, but not in a hundred years. And we have had um, in the past, some very frightening pandemics, yellow fever in the late 19th century, which generated much of our federal law that we have today that governs the federal government's role in interstate quarantine. Um, and, and then also, of course, the 1918 pandemic. And it's, it, in many ways, we are back where we started. In 1918, the Surgeon General of the United States is sending out circulars to state health departments and putting ads in newspapers saying, please make your own mask and wear them. And then urging folks to please, <laughs> you know, wear a mask in public and asking for state and local governments to have mask requirements. So the one difference that I see, and, and I agree completely with, with, with Deborah in the sense that the imbalance today seems to me that one cannot sue to ask the government to act to protect you in the same way that you can sue to challenge this based on some uh, uh, fundamental right to not wear a face mask, something like that. You know, it, it's a very it's a very difficult question, but let's go back to 1918, a very different century in, in many ways. But uh, most of the courts that dealt with challenges to what were local cities uh, having face mask requirements, for example, but they also closed churches and schools and businesses. Uh, 
very much like today. Those challenges were generally upheld, but they were almost all of them in state court. So what is different today, uh, a century later, it's much easier to bring federal constitutional challenges for reasons that, that we can talk about. But one thing that has not changed, and, and I think this is what's very significant about uh, Chief Justice Roberts' recent action. We, we began the program talking about Chief Justice Roberts, and, and Adam mentioned this, but in South Bay United Pentecostal Church just a month ago, admittedly not a precedential decision in the sense that the uh, Supreme Court is denying an interlocutory appeal for injunction. But Chief Justice Roberts went out of his way to affirm that Jacobson v. Massachusetts, this is a case from 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, is still central to how the federal courts should deal with this. And, and if you don't mind, I'll, if I could just quote briefly from that. He says, our Constitution principally entrusts the safety and health of the people to the politically accountable offices of the states. And then he cites uh, a case from more than a century ago. And then he goes on to say, uh, when the officials undertake to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties, their latitude must be especially respected. So I, for one, think that there is room for a much greater federal role than we have. And when I look back to yellow fever epidemics, late 19th century, I look back to the Spanish flu, state and local governments are begging for federal help that they do not get. And in some ways, uh, we are in a similar situation. I would Let me just throw out, and I'll, I'll, stop, I'll stop talking, but let me just throw out a few where federal government leadership would help state governors, would help local uh, mayors. One of those is um, OSHA, you know, some, some workplace requirements that would help employers know what they have to do to avoid liability, to protect folks. The Federal Aviation Administration could make it clear uh, whether face masks are required on planes or not. Uh, procurement, you know, we have governors who have gotten together uh, to uh, in, in, in groups to buy uh, PPE because they don't have federal access to it and they don't want to be on a market, you know, singly and alone like a lot of our healthcare providers are. Um, and then finally, travel, which was mentioned earlier, we've got many states, Hawaii, for example, but Florida, New York, which, which I say, if people are coming in from outside, they should quarantine for two weeks. That's exactly what um, our federal government requires of, of returning U.S. travelers to the United States. They uh, at least suggest that it should be a 14-day quarantine. And so when, when there's no federal leadership on the interstate quarantine idea, um, you, can, you can understand why states would step in. They, they have undergone, many of them have undergone very painful closures, business closures, social distancing measures, stay-at-home orders, and they want to be able to control who comes in. And let's look at Hawaii as a nation. So uh, many nations uh, are, and the U.S. now is being quarantined, uh, you know, by the European Union. You can't travel freely there. Uh, we do the same thing for many other countries, but Hawaii can't do that with respect to travelers coming in, um, either Hawaii citizens or not. 
or at least that was the position of the Department of Justice for their most recent order. I, I'll stop talking. Those are some of the issues that I see as greater federal role, but I'd like to leave with the, uh, the notion that we, we have been here before. The problem is it's been more than 100 years since we faced these serious calamities. Our laws probably have not kept up. I think um, governors are probably doing the best they can under their state's emergency laws. Those are geared towards um, hurricanes and other kinds of disasters. And I, I expect that we'll see a lot more legislation coming out in the future about this. But the question is, you know, who controls now? Thank you for all that. Thank you for that really interesting series of suggestions about ways the federal government could act more vigorously. Um, Adam White, I wonder if you agree. You wrote a really interesting piece for the Battle of the Constitution site, Deregulate for the Coronavirus Recovery, where you argue that uh, White House offices like OIRA need to identify opportunities for relief from existing regulations. So uh, imagine that uh, Vice President Biden wins the election and the coronavirus is still raging and, and some of Polly's suggestions um, are adopted, uh, do you believe they would be consistent with the Constitution, with federal law? And Mel Schuster uh, asks in our Q&A box, would a more vigorous federal response be consistent with the 10th Amendment? Well, it's true. I did say that, that now is a time where the government does need to focus in some respects on deregulation. And there I was focusing on deregulatory efforts, short-term things, not long-term things that might help juice the economy when it's time to open up. Um, I, I do agree with Polly that there's a lot the federal government can and should do to clarify just federal protective requirements, especially in the context she mentioned, OSHA, the FAA, and a few others. One place where I'd slightly disagree with Polly, uh, respectfully, and this gets to the question that's being asked, is on this question of federal versus state power here. Now, I do agree the federal government hasn't done enough in terms of broad guidance, um, in terms of messaging, advice. I'm glad to see the federal government has put financial resources you know, behind some of its effort. But I think I would slightly disagree with Polly maybe um, on, on the allocation of power, because I think it's good that the states take the lead. Um, the century-old case that she mentioned, Jacobson, it was, after all, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And and the court, the, 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 the laws at issue, which Chief Justice Roberts was referring to, were, you know, then the laws of the state of Massachusetts. I do think it's good that our states are, are responsible for taking a lead in many aspects of protection, including protection against communicable diseases, in part because... The government response isn't strictly a, te a technical matter, uh, a matter of expertise. It has to be informed by that, and really that has to lead the way. But ultimately, there are really tough value judgments to be made about how fast to open certain things when you consider both the public health impacts and some of the impacts on people's lives and livelihoods, which in and of themselves can, can affect public health. And so I'm actually glad that the states take the lead regardless of the administration in terms of day-to-day -day management. And I don't know that, I, I, I hope I'm not overstating my disagreement with Polly there. Um, it really is, I think, it's, it's a matter of shades of, of gray. I do think it's important for the federal government, though, to play a leadership role on issues that are crossing state borders, um, and also just on bringing to bear the government, the federal government's expertise, which is really unparalleled. And I don't think there's been enough of that, and that would have been a good thing for this administration to focus more on. Deborah, there are several questions about liability 
with regard to COVID. Kenneth Davis asks, can someone discuss the issue of liability as it relates to COVID and people, businesses, institutions? How are the various interests balanced? And uh, Ashley Meyer says, I've seen some states contemplating the criminalization of spreading COVID. This reminds me of the criminalization of the spread of HIV AIDS, which obviously disproportionately harmed LGBT people. Uh, I think this connects to the discussion earlier, but perhaps someone could comment on how we can move away from carceral solutions because as Professor Perlstein stated, COVID is only a more dire situation in prisons. So um, those are both good questions and they're sort of specific. Let me start with an overarching point and then and then address them each um, because in the specifics, it's gonna depend a lot on what the law is and what each state is, is doing. Um, in general, right, the failure of the federal response or the failure of kind of rapid responses um, has a cost. And often the cost is if you do nothing when you could do some modest things to stem the spread of a public health threat, right? Like early testing and early observation and early monitoring and so forth. Um, and you wait until the disease is at crisis levels. Now you're in a position where you may have to take more draconian steps, right? So instead of initial containment of the disease where you can monitor people coming into the country, uh, do widespread testing and then identify who they are, track and, and trace, and then isolate those individuals. Instead, you saw widespread nationwide global shutdown, right? Uh, because we sort of missed the opportunity for containment and we're largely back at that point now, right? So instead of more limited, not great, but more limited infringements on civil liberties and rights, you have the government in a position where in order to protect catastrophic damage to public health and, you know, another 100,000 lives lost, um, they have to take more extreme steps. So I'm not surprised to see um, these sort of more extreme proposals out there um, and and states have and historically have had, even though they haven't used it much, enormously broad powers and they're called, you know, constitutional police powers, by which I don't mean the power of the police agencies, right? Um, but police powers, which is general governmental powers that the federal government lacks in order to address threats to public health and safety. So many states have the power to powers that they haven't yet used to impose detention conditions on people who are violating quarantine or otherwise not complying with um, state requirements. And that's a serious concern. So far, we haven't seen it materialize. Um, and, and, and I hope, obviously, that won't be necessary and won't be the case. But here's a great example where modest federal intervention, by which I mean uniform messaging and raising public awareness of the importance of, say, wearing a mask, right? Wear a mask, save a lot of lives, and avoid the potentially catastrophic burden on civil liberties that these more draconian measures that states have in their toolbox may impose. Um, the question about liability uh, is, is potentially a really broad one, right? Uh, because liability can arise in lots of different circumstances. Sometimes it's questions of contractual violations. More often it's questions of tort liability. Um, but to address it, and, and those again vary a great deal by state, but just to take the constitutional, potentially constitutional aspect of this question in two ways. 
So in the Eighth Amendment context, right, for people who are in prison having been convicted of a crime, um, the government or whoever the detainer is, whether it's the state government or the federal prison system, has an obligation under the Eighth Amendment not to engage in cruel and uh, inhuman punishment. Um, and historically, that has been historically and today, that's interpreted to require the federal government to provide a certain baseline level of safe conditions of prison, uh, safe uh, detention conditions in prisons, right? And in the eighth, in the prison system for people who've been convicted, it's an Eighth Amendment theory. In immigration detention, it's typically addressed under the uh, due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. But either way, the standard is, can you show that there is, in one form or another, deliberate indifference to the health and safety of the people that you're detaining? So if you're a prison system and there's an outbreak of COVID in your facility and you do nothing um, at all to provide prisoners masks or socially distance or in other ways um, meet guidelines, public health and safety guidelines for addressing those conditions, in theory, you can be held liable and, and there are, um, or you can be required to, to change, uh, which is the, the more important thing to do, uh, uh, initially at least, address the circumstances through injunction. Um, and we see actually a lot of litigation on that. Now there are ACLU cases, there are cases all over the country and in the lower courts in the district courts, they found some success. Um, the much harder questions though are yet to come. First, these have yet to see really much consideration by any federal appeals court, much less the Supreme Court. But what if prisons take some steps, right? Just simply not sufficient to stem the outbreak, which might require temporary release or home confinement or some other more extreme actions, there it's very difficult to meet the constitutional standard of showing deliberate indifference. You're not, the prison system isn't entirely indifferent. They're just simply behaving inadequately. And whether existing constitutional doctrine on deliberate indifference in these circumstances um, is adequate, I think is a really big question and one we have yet to see play out. Polly, uh, Gary Moskvitz asked, what's the role of state and municipal governments? And just to play out your call for more vigorous state action more uh, aggressively, is, th is there anything the feds could do in a hypothetical future administration that would violate the Constitution? And tell us about the lesson of the yellow fever epidemics and, and what the Supreme Court's ambiguous statements about any limits on federal power to quarantine might be. Well, I, th I think there can clearly be uh, instances in which the federal government overreaches. Uh, we, we haven't seen that because we haven't seen a lot of federal intervention. So I think for, for most everyday Americans, the question is, whether has their state or local government overreached? And I think that it, it's a very complicated question because uh, states, as you know, vary on the extent to which they have home rule, where where Houston, for example, can can have a face mask requirement if the state governor says no face mask requirements. So that that varies so much by state that it's very hard to generalize. But it's interesting to see that the most recent activity on face masks, for example, is governors devolving authority to local uh, jurisdictions to decide on face mask requirements. And, you know, that, that may be passing the buck. It may be uh, empowering those jurisdictions. But but nonetheless, it's it's very hard to to talk in general about what what authority does a mayor have versus a governor, because our 50 states 
mirror in their own states the federalism that we have at our other level. So we can't, uh, it, it's, it's very hard to uh, generalize about that. So I guess what I would, what I'd say is I, I think Adam and I are on the same page about, I think that local governments, state governments, their health departments are on the ground. They know the conditions. They should be making the calls in, in some very basic considerations. Yes, it would be helpful to have uh, federal assistance in, in the areas that I outlined. We don't have that. So let's, let's talk about what the state government authority is. And the state government authority seems to be pretty substantial in the sense that most governors uh, of the 50 states are relying on emergency declarations for these kinds of orders. And those emergency declarations have been in turn previously authorized by the legislatures. So in, in each state, it's still yet a question, has this emergency been met? And is this within the, th the authority of the governor? At the end of the day, I, I go back to what um, Chief Ramsey said about uh, trust and legitimacy, balance and challenge. And, and that is, um, you can't have a situation where you're trying to enforce a requirement on a population where the majority of the population rejects it. That's that's a useless waste of your law enforcement resources to go out and give tickets to people who aren't staying at home or aren't wearing um, masks and so forth. So it's really the messaging and it's the, do we is there legitimacy and trust in that state and local government? And, and, and I do think you know, the federal government backing them up in these tough decisions would be very helpful. It's also the case that, again, when you go to the situation where, you know, in what one state's rules are different from another state's, one county is different from another. I live in Atlanta. At one point, I was under a, a curfew and quarantine order in one county and not in the city of Atlanta. And yet I could walk a mile away and be under different rules. And that's just not helpful or at least from a from a public health perspective, that's that's not helpful from whatever your political perspective might be. Well, friends, thank you so much for staying with us as we run over. I'm gonna uh, we'll have the briefest of closing statements just because we really don't want to impose on uh, everyone's uh, uh, generous uh, spending time with us much longer. But um, Adam, uh, you know, in in a, in a sentence or two for each of you what is the legal or constitutional violation uh, that you're most concerned about that may arise in the COVID crisis? And, and what cases are you looking out for? Boy, that's what a question. Uh, I mean, so far I've been pretty comfortable with what's been happening. I think there's been a lot of infringements on liberty. Maybe some have gone a little overbroad, but not the kind of thing that courts could really intervene with. One thing I was worried about was the actions of Mayor de Blasio in New York, where he seemed to be singling out explicitly um, Jewish communities, um, Jewish and calling them out by name. I was profoundly troubled by that. Um, and, and so I was worried about that. I'd say going forward, the greatest constitutional challenge, I just say in a sentence, is how we move from this emergency footing to a slightly more normal footing where while we're trying to grapple with coronavirus, we're doing it through more normal channels of government with greater in, in, involvement by Congress and state legislatures. Our friend Yuval, and I, Yuval Levin and I wrote about this. I think pivoting back towards a more normal government footing that grapples with the severity of this problem is our greatest challenge. We've put in the chat box your piece, The Flaw in the President's Newest Constitutional Argument on the Battle Side. Deborah, the same question to you in just uh, a, a few sentences, the legal or constitutional 
um, violations uh, that you're most concerned about moving forward? I'm most worried about our ability to carry out free and fair elections. Um, I think we've had more than enough warning shots across the bow as we've watched um, primary states really struggle, particularly Wisconsin, for example, Georgia, uh, really struggle with the need to both conduct um, effective and timely uh, mail-in um, absentee ballot and make those readily available to everyone. And at the same time, um, while they're having to shut down polling places um, in order to protect public health and safety, make sure that everybody has a place to vote if they need to vote in person. Um, I think there, the trade-off between competence and liberty is likely to be acute. We can do this, um, but it's one of those instances in which we have to have effective government from the federal level to provide funding to state and local election officials to get it done. We posted your piece, Zoom Congress is perfectly constitutional, as well as Polly's piece, How a Fragmented Country Fights in a Pandemic, and all these resources will be on our uh, interactive constitution along with this video. Polly Price, the last word in this incredibly rich and unbelievably thought-provoking discussion is to you in a few sentences. What legal or constitutional violation are you most concerned about looking forward? I I couldn't agree more with Deborah and Adam, and thank you for uh, having me on a panel with, with both of those. I, I would just leave you with not a constitutional challenge, but again, what Chief Justice Roberts said uh, a month ago, which is, when these officials, and he means state and local officials, when these officials undertake to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties, their latitude must be especially broad. And to remind everyone, we are in an era in which we there are medical and scientific uncertainties that have been unfolding as we go. We uh, trust they will get better, that we'll have tests to be able to determine who is contagious and who is not, but we don't have them at the moment. And in an emergency like this, it does seem like, um, again, giving deference to the elected officials who have to take the heat for whatever decision they make is the right way to go. I was taking notes and I will insert that with your uh, permission in the, in the Roberts piece, because I think it's very illuminating of his judicial philosophy. Um, Thank you so much. First of all, to our amazing audience, you're still here, so many of you, uh, at uh, 8.15 at night, because you've taken the time out of your busy schedules to educate yourself about the Constitution, listening to complicated, difficult arguments uh, offered by brilliant scholars of very different perspectives. This is a model of civil dialogue. I have learned so much from it. I know you have too. And I'm so, if you'll allow me to say it to our dear audience, proud of you for taking the time to educate yourself with the Constitution. Thank you for doing that. And please join me giving a great virtual round of applause to Adam White, Deborah Perlstein, and Polly Price. Adam, Deborah, thank you all so much for joining. Everyone, we'll thank see you, you again soon. Have a good night and thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. This episode was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, and Tanea Tauber. This program is made possible through generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. It is presented in partnership with The Atlantic and in conjunction with The Battle for the Constitution. So if you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please check out The Battle for the Constitution at theatlantic.com projects. We'll link to the site and to the panelists' essays on our episode webpage. 
If you'd like to hear more from the symposium, please tune in to part one, which aired last week. It's a conversation on policing, protests, and the Constitution. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.